And on this planet at this time in your life, the first thing, in my own opinion, that stops you is your own judgment, the things that you feel. And it's unique to each individual. It's the things that you've done or that have happened to you that you evaluate and judge as significant in one form or another that prevents you from moving forward or reaching out. This is Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, with Whitney Ann Jenkins. Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, where I bring on guests and we talk about the inner authentic voice and the rewards and the challenges that come from following it. This week I have with me Dr. Dan McCarty, and Dr. McCarty, Dr. Dan, as we like to call him, I met him in the theater, and he is a chiropractor. And Dr. Dan and I had a great rapport right from the beginning of meeting each other. We've probably had hundreds of conversations equivalent to a conversation that is had on a podcast, just talking and philosophizing about different things about life. And Dr. Dan called me out of the blue a couple days ago, and I thought he would be a really interesting guest to bring on because we were going through some transitions around the same time. I ended up in Los Angeles, and Dr. Dan ended up giving up his chiropractor practice to go to Kentucky to work as an auditor for Scientology. And Dr. Dan is one of the nicest guys that I know. And also Scientology is kind of a hot topic right now with all of the documentaries and TV shows that are happening exposing Scientology. And so I thought it'd be interesting to bring him on to get his perspective on everything that's going on. And he's definitely followed his own voice throughout his life, as you'll get to know through this interview. I also want to say that even though we are talking about Scientology in this podcast, it in no way reflects my own views or opinions regarding this religion and organization. I am simply curious about Dr. Dan's experiences and how it's led him to finding his true, authentic inner voice. And so I will leave all of the opinions up to you. And who knows, maybe you might learn something about Scientology that you didn't know before. Okay, here we go. Hello, Whitney. How are you? Where are you? Good to see. I'm, I'm good. I'm in Kentucky yeah. at my and office. And I uh, just had a patient just finished up a little while ago. So here I am. Perfect. I'm kind of curious as to where you're going to go. But anyway, I'll let you be the moderator. And I hope I have answers for all your questions. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> How has Kentucky been during this pandemic time? It's been good. I uh, We were uh, shut down for close to five months, but I was still working from home. And uh, it, it was nice. I, I really enjoyed that. It gave me a chance to get out and... Uh, <laughs> I kind of ignored it all. I didn't, I wasn't really, I didn't feel bad about it. I treated it like a big ass vacation. Yeah. And uh, it was a unique experience and it still is uh, with, you know, the restrictions that we still have here in Kentucky. I, but I'm not affected by it. No, only a few people have been affected. Yeah. It, it seems that, I mean, you're a healer with what you do. So it seems like yeah. the, the healers are really kind of embracing this time mm -hmm. in the hibernation so that they can recharge. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, How about you? How's it, how's, it, how's it affected you? I've embraced it too. I kind of don't want to come out of hibernation mode. I'm really enjoying <laughs> <laughs> my solitude. So I agree. We'll yeah, see. It's, it's going to be really interesting to get back to however things are going to be and I think there's going to be a lot of adjusting just with emotional intelligence and interaction with people, like feeling comfortable again, being intimate with people, like in everyday interaction. Mm -hmm. It's had a huge effect, I think, on, uh, well, you know, commercially around the country, educationally. Uh, 
and like you say, socially, it has made people somewhat distant. I don't know what it's done to the dating world because I haven't been out there for about five years. <laughs> I think it's kind of tricky. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like you're going to have to want to risk um, some kind of exposure if you're going to really pursue that. Or it's all virtual, which is frustrating in itself, I think. True, true. So what exactly are you doing in Kentucky? And you have your practice there um, for chiropractic? I do. I opened right at the beginning of the pandemic and was immediately shut down. I mean, we're talking the same month. And... uh, Luckily for me, the gentleman that I'm working with, I'm renting space from, yeah, he understood and he canceled any of the, the costs or the rent for the entire time until we reopened. And uh, I practice in the mornings from about 8 a.m. to 1. And then I run over to uh, the course room at Scientology and I'm on course from 1 till 6. Wow. And then... I eat and then I go on, I work as an employee of the church from seven till 10 o'clock, Monday through Friday. Weekends, I work for them from 8.30 in the morning till six on Saturday and Sunday. So I'm working seven days a week. That's pretty intense. And uh, <laughs> Yeah. It is. It, uh, the only thing faster than a day is a week. It just clicks and it goes by so quick. I've been here uh, a little over four years now about eight months to go and it feels like it's ending (laughs) incredible yeah i know that i i saw the the transition for you for that time and so you kind of you you kind of follow your the beat to your own drum i would say with your your life and so i kind of want to get back to the beginning and dig in a little deeper because i i feel that's where things truly start is in our childhood and so I was wondering if you remember the first time that you realized that you had an inner voice, that drumbeat inside of you, that was truly your own without the influence of anyone else's opinion or your parents or society. And you're like, oh, this is me. That's an interesting question. I remember an inner voice as a very young child. Um, I'd say probably at about age five, kind of a, a conversation with self regarding situations as to what I was doing, whether it was safe or whether it was going to be fun. Mm-hmm. And I, I, just, I felt like that was completely natural, but I never really identified it as anything other than a conversation that I was having with myself. Right. And um, it was a very, it was almost like a playmate in that somebody to be with and question and get answers from. Yeah. But it wasn't until about, I'd say, probably age uh, 12, no, earlier, 10, age 10, where I actually kind of recognized that that voice was me. Okay. Is there a specific moment that brought that to light? You know, it was a um, an interaction with my grandmother, and she um, was very upset at the time. And I mirrored a lot of her emotions up to that time. When she would get upset, I got upset, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, she'd cry, and I'd either cry or feel upset. And at this one particular time, she started to lose it. <laughs> And I just said to myself, okay, don't cry. And I didn't. And um, I allowed her to go through the emotion that she was going through. And all of a sudden, she came out of it. And I remember thinking, wow, that was completely separate of me to do that. Yeah. And uh, that was, I'd say, the first time I really listened, kind of took control of my own voice. So, it and, sound, yeah, it sounds like you were very empathic as a kid. Yes, yes. But that inner voice, I really recognized that that was me and not some third party mm-hmm. or other entity uh, when I decided to become a chiropractor because I was having a, a lucid conversation with myself and comparing my choices of life at uh, age 17. 
Oh, wow. And really following what it was that I decided. And I remember making the choice at, at 17 to become a chiropractor. And uh, the decision was so solid. It, it was just like, uh, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm not going to let anything stop me. Mm-hmm. And I followed through with that. And not to say that it was the correct decision, which is interesting in hindsight. There were other pursuits that I had that I also wanted to do, but I had decided, and I didn't change from that. <laughs> and where I am now, looking back, I can see the mistakes that I made in that decision. Oh. And, oh. Uh, yeah. Isn't that part of the fun? Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. I originally wanted to be in politics. I was a political science major in, oh. in my early college years, and I was doing really well. I was, I was almost a straight-A student. But at that age, friends of mine said that if you wanted to do anything with uh, political science majors, you had to go to law school. And, you know, at that point, all I knew was that lawyers were crooked. Mm. Imagine that. I had no sense of understanding other than that, other than the, what other people had said. And it was a false observation of mine. But I accepted that as true. And based on that, I just switched majors into science and fell right on my face. (laughs) (laughs) It it, uh, was not a correct decision uh, in hindsight. I have no desire to go into politics now, even though I, you know, looking back and thinking and thinking that it was a wrong decision. In fact, I I don't even like politics anymore. (laughs) It's, It's gotten way too controversial and uh, explosive. And uh, I I see too many destroyed lives and come to terms with being a a chiropractor. What was it about the political science that drew you to that? Was it the possibility of helping people in society like transform and move forward? Or or what was it about that? No? Fame. Oh. Yeah. I, I wanted to be on the stage. I wanted people to be listening to what I had to say. I wanted uh, power, you know, all the wrong reasons to get into politics. <laughs> did you, um, you know, okay, at, the, at that young age, did you feel like you had something to say that you wanted people to hear? I, I truly wanted to help people. And I think that's part of the reason I also became a chiropractor. Mm-hmm. Um, I like interaction with people and I find it the most interesting part of life in the interaction. Uh, and I thought I could do that as, you know, uh, a government official. And I, I know initially when I, I wanted to, I wanted to be the governor of uh, New Jersey. What the hell, you know, where does that go? <laughs> um, that was my dream until I switched majors. You know, I thought being a governor would be a cool thing. It's like the top tier of each state in the country (laughs) and you don't have to be president, but you have everything that a president has, but it's a little bit smaller, (laughs) comfortable. Yeah. (laughs) Not as overwhelming. No, not at all. And still having to deal with all the the concerns of a, a, a body of people and provide, help provide answers for what it is that they're facing. Mm. And, uh, And there's still that little bit of fame involved too that you were oh, seeking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So chiropractic is very different from political science and it's kind of alternative in, in some regards. So how did you, how did you come upon that? Um, by chance, really, I wasn't looking for it. I uh, was involved in uh, jujitsu, judo. Mm. And uh, I was working with another student as an uki Anuki is the person that gets thrown by the person, the other person. And uh, I was helping him prepare for his black belt test. So in a three-hour workout session, he'd be tossing me around the room. And at one particular throw, I landed on my, my shoulder and neck and ended up with a misalignment in the neck that was extremely painful. And I came home, and my, my father took one look at me. He said, you need to go to a chiropractor. And uh, they lined up an appointment and I went. And 
it was like an epiphany. The guy fixed me in two visits. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed it and continued to go on my own accord uh, because it made me feel good. And uh, the chiropractor asked, he said, so what are you, you going to do with your life? I said, I don't know. He said, well, what do you want to do? I said, my three criteria are I have to work with people. I have to be my own boss. And I want to make as much money as my old man. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, you should become a chiropractor. And his name was Dr. Dan McGarn. So the initials of his name were the same as mine. And he had the (laughs) MC. It was easy to translate McCarty into, you know, from McGarn. Yeah. And I could I could visualize my name as a doctor, and I thought, wow, that'd be cool. That so that filled the power thing, you know, the yeah. the notoriety or the the famousness. And I liked the idea. And the, uh, he gave me the address of the school that I attended eventually, which was Palmer College in Davenport, Iowa. And again, I latched onto that based on only what he said, you know, and what he had done, the experience that I had with the interaction with this man. And that's all. And I went with it very quickly. And uh, not to say that it was easy. I was not a good student. But the decision was very quick. Mm-hmm. And uh, this can relate back to the decision to you know, switch majors from political science to chiropractic and further back to not cry yeah. when it comes to, you know, the interaction with a person such as my grandmother yeah and uh further on down the line toward present time my decision in scientology to become an auditor mm-hmm. it was a very quick decision and again all in uh no right. no hesitation or concern as to the regard for anyone else other than myself right sounds selfish doesn't it <laughs> It doesn't, though, because it sounds like you were very empathic and perhaps you had to create boundaries around yourself so that you wouldn't be so affected by that. And so Mm -hmm. maybe that's where the power or the desire for power came in is to shield yourself from taking on the things of so many other people. Yes. And I don't know if I ever mentioned it as to what effect it had on me, but I grew up, you know, child of uh, alcoholic parents. Mm. Um, my father was a recovered alcoholic. He never drank, you know, at all, but he was alcoholic. My mother was an on-again, on-again, off-again drinker. That did have a huge effect on my viewpoints, I think, and uh, my understanding of the world. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I've, I've read different books and attended meetings, you know, AA and uh, N.A. and uh, Adult Children of Alcoholics mm-hmm. read their materials, and it's interesting to see the correlations. You can, you can if you right. want, you can mm-hmm. connect up all these different causes and effects. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't discount all of it. Yeah, I like to think that's a little bit more under my control, but you know, looking back is an interesting phenomenon. We can see clearly a path. Right. Yes. So connecting your empathic nature to chiropractic, what is that connection like for you? Do you feel like the energy kind of releasing whenever you're working on a patient or what is, how does that go? The connection is more of a a one-on-one, you could say empathy as to I can feel their pain though I do put up a wall. Initially, I think all doctors go through a stage where their empathy is very high, and then professionally, they, they, they build that wall or that screen where they're not affected by what it is that they come across. Mm-hmm. The pain, the suffering, um, that, that is, I think, part of professional development. Um, in some cases, and not my own, it may just be a disregard for people. You find some some doctors are actually very cold, yeah. and there is no connection. It's just mechanical. It's not been that way for me, and I've always been an, if you would, 
an in-the-trenches kind of chiropractor. I thoroughly enjoy the connection with a person and their problem, and that develops as it, as it heals into a relationship with the person. So, so it's a it's a unique kind of sensation, and it's the it's the reward for what I do. And uh, it's never been about the money. I mean, I've made you know six figures at some points in my career, but I never equated that with the best years of my practice. Yeah. I don't make much now, but I'm doing that on purpose. But the the engagement and the results and the overall feeling of it is as big or even larger than it has ever been. I truly enjoy the profession. And uh, I compare that to other colleagues who have been mechanical and they don't enjoy it. Yeah. I can't say that's true for everyone, but I've really guarded that aspect of it and it continues to grow. That's, that's more than a lot of people can say. So that's amazing that you are still so connected to that decision that you made when you were 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were you raised with any kind of religious influences? Catholic. Yeah. The uh, typical Catholic upbringing of uh, a family a father who was raised strict Roman Catholic and a mother who was just Catholic. I went to Catholic school as a child. And, uh, you know, when I started to kind of push back against it and then question it, my mother's answers were, well, Dan, you have to go to church to be a good Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my dad died at age 21, and I, I was a little bit uh, searching then. I didn't really find much of an answer in my Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I stumbled across a born-again Christian and ended up going to his house for some Bible studies and conversations. And, you know, and lo and behold, a few weeks after that, I, I accepted Christ is my Lord and Savior. And I came home and I said, Mom, Mom, I've you know, accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm saved. And she looked at me and she said, Danny, you're Catholic. You can't change. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? And, you know, it was at that point that I really recognized my mother was in a box. <laughs> could not look outside of that at all. And yeah. she couldn't understand it. And uh, God love her. She, she's stayed that way almost up until the end of her life. I think, you know, she had her own religious epiphany as she got older. And uh, I like to think I had a hand in that, but I wasn't really a, a evangelical in my approach to my Christianity. I just liked it a little bit more because it was probably a little more abbreviated than Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at what point then because um, I want to get to the Scientology because that's an interesting connection to where you are now. How did that become introduced into your life? At what age? And how did that come about? Scientology? Yeah. I um, was out of chiropractic college. I was about 31 years of age. A friend had invited me to go to a seminar in Chicago. And he, he warned me. He said, now the guy that's going to be lecturing is a Scientologist and you don't want anything to do with that. Well, my ears perked up right away. I was like, Scientology, what the hell is that? You know? Um, anyway, uh, there was no mention of it. But there was a guy at one of the breaks that got up and said, if there's anybody in the audience that is in a relationship and you'd like it to improve, or if you're looking for a right relationship, or you don't want to make a mistake in relationships, you need to read this book. And he held it up. There was a book called Science of Survival by Olin Hubbard. It was a big, thick book. And uh, at the break, I went out in the hallway and I bought it. And I went back to my hotel room and started to read it. And I didn't understand all of it. But there were aspects of it that really caught my attention. And I thought, there's something to this. Long story short, I did what is famous in Scientology known as the personality test or the right. OCA, which is an Oxford capacity analysis. Uh, a gentleman reviewed that with me and he pegged me. And this was at a point where I was doing really well. I was making probably about $175,000 in a year. And uh, I had everything that I wanted mm-hmm. and I was freaking miserable. I was a born-again Christian at this point. I was attending church. I was going to a Bible study. 
but when I wasn't at church or the Bible study, I was out of my my behavior was not angelic. <laughs> and it didn't agree with me, yet I couldn't seemingly stop. For instance, I could not go into a bar and not have a drink. Uh-huh. I wasn't alcoholic, but I felt the pressure to drink. Like socially, I couldn't go in and order a Coke or not drink. It just was something I felt the pressure. On top of this, my behavior at the time was not commendable. Anyway, this gentleman pegged me with this personality test of Scientology, and it, it caught my attention, and he said, you need to do a thing called life repair. And life repair in Scientology is a beginning auditing action for somebody that hasn't done anything. And uh, I flew to Los Angeles. I spent a week there, and I underwent the auditing. And in about three days, everything that was bothering me lifted. It went away. I, I lost the desire to drink. I quit running around and doing the stupid stuff. And I felt significantly different. And even more so than my Christian understanding of being saved. It was a physical and mental epiphany and change that was obvious and clear. And I said to my auditor at the time, at one point, I said, I want to do what you do. And he said, well, that's great. Maybe you should consider that. And yet here I was just newly in, as a chiropractor. I couldn't quit. Right. I had these huge student loans and debt. And all. So I basically continued to work as a chiropractor and did a little bit of Scientology, but always in the back of my mind, always wanting to do it professionally. Interesting. Could you Which, um, pause for a minute just for the listener? Sure. What was the process like for the the first time you went to Los Angeles? Are you allowed to talk about like what happens during the process? Sure. The, the process was basically uh, you, I was at the Beverly Hills mission. The mission is a smaller branch that is separate from any of the larger churches, usually run by an individual who owns everything in it. Um, you go in, you redo a, all of the testing, IQ, uh, personality and intelligence type tests. And uh, it is a baseline measurement of who you are coming in. And uh, there's an interview that is done on the knee meter and certain questions are asked just to see from a list as to the e-meters reactions as to where the charge is in your life, on top of which you can submit areas that you think you'd like to fix, the areas that are bothering you. What is an e-meter? And they develop, an e-meter is the tool that they use in Scientology auditing. It is basically a, a meter that has a needle that moves back and forth on a dial that is connected to the individual by a wire and person holds two metal cans and a small current goes through the, the wires into your hand up across your body into the other can back into the meter. And when a person thinks, um, you're basically moving mass. Thought has weight. When you have the blues, you feel heavy. You right. feel pressed down. You feel pressure. Thought has weight. It has mass. Very tiny, but it can be measured. And in this case, it can be seen. So when you're holding these cans or electrodes and you think a thought, it can cause the needle to move. And it's not based on temperature or hand pressure, although those things can affect it. If a person is very still, the needle reactions are very accurate. And all it indicates to an auditor or counselor is that there's been a thought. And the auditor reacts to that thought and asks you to speak about that particular thing and have a look at that thought. And by looking at the thought, you figure out the answer. And one of the first things that attracted me to this was that there was no evaluation. They're not telling me, well, Dan, you really need to stop drinking. You know, if I was looking at something regarding my drinking, I could figure it out on my own. And that is very much the experience in a life repair. You handle the things of your life that are most pressing, most concerning you. Mm-hmm. and that contain the most charge per the e-meter. 
Okay. You may not even know that there are certain areas that do bother you, but the meter picks it up. So your auditor will go into those areas. So it's kind of like facing your dragons in a way, looking them. Absolutely. Yeah. The process um, can be very scary. Um, I say to people very often that judgment is real, be it in another life, you know, if you are religious, uh, judgment of God, however you view that. There's also self-judgment. And on this planet, at this time in your life, the first thing, in my own opinion, that stops you is your own judgment, the things that you feel. And it's unique to each individual. It's the things that you've done or that have happened to you that you evaluate and judge as significant in one form or another that prevents you from moving forward or reaching out. And... uh, I mean, my gosh, I, I look back, I can see relationships and that I lost out on that I shoulda, woulda, coulda, and opportunities and things all because of my idea that I was shy. I wasn't shy. I was completely introverted because of how I felt about me. Right. You so, know me. Yeah, I do know you. I do know you. <laughs> well, I'm saying you, you know me from uh, our meeting via the theater community. Right. Theater for me was a point of being able to confront something, one that I'd never done, a fear and a chance to meet and greet new people in a unique setting that developed. And uh, if it wasn't for Scientology, I don't think I could have confronted that. Not to say that it made it any easier. Um, <laughs> My experience on stage was as nerve-wracking as anyone's. <laughs> Come on, you were a bit of a ham. <laughs> I was a bit of a ham, I will admit that, yes. It must have been the, the political I, science aspect coming through. <laughs> you know, here we go. It's, it's very closely related when you you know standing up in front of a group. Uh, although I, I do relate uh, my challenge to myself in karaoke from coming from theater. You know, seeing others do it. And if heck, if they can do it, I can do it. And these little confronting situations, now I'm more willing to do and enjoy more than I ever have before, where before it just would have stopped me. You know, I can, I can do anything. I have a freedom now. And the experience is that, you know, that fear factor, but not to a degree that it prevents me from the experience. So you're saying in a way that Scientology has helped you uh, tune in to your inner voice and be able to express it through the different activities or life situations. Yes. Um, And now I recognize that that inner voice is completely and utterly me. It's no one else. And I'm in control. I don't know if I told you I went clear two years ago and, uh, that's like the ultimate initial goal in Scientology to go clear. It took me about eight months and uh, I haven't had a bad day since I've had bad moments. Uh, I've gotten very angry, but one of the aspects of being clear is the ability to experience all emotions up and down the scale of emotions from the very high to the very low. But as a clear, you don't get stuck. You don't stick in a depression. You don't uh, get stuck in a fear. You recognize it and you can come right out of it. So I can experience more. Where before, for me to have fun, I'd have to drink. Or for me to relax, I'd have to drink. Mm -hmm. Or for me to be social, I'd have to be in a certain situation with certain people because other people were not that way. Now I can just be myself. I see. There's a bit of a mystery, I feel like, around the whole going clear thing. And there's a lot of things that are currently in the news or documentaries and um, things that portray Scientology in a certain light. So how do you digest those things and allow yourself to stay true to that without uh, having to defend it? That's such a good question because um, you're right. Uh, there is a lot of controversy. There is 
a lot of negativity. Um, Scientologists as a whole ignore it. They don't watch any um, television programs, or podcasts, or YouTube, or whatever the media is that is controversially against or negative about Scientology. Just as a, as a matter of fact, it's, it's something you ignore. Uh, the, the organization as itself uh, does that also. And yet it continues to grow as well as the individuals continue to grow. You don't need to know the bad in order to be informed. You know, I, I know of Leah Remney and what she has done, but I don't follow Leah Remney. Um, I can't say I really watched any of her television shows when she was on prior to the controversy. And from what I hear, what she has said has just been horrendous. And in my position within the church, what I do for them as an employee, I deal with new public. And that's one of the biggest things that come in. And, and people are always saying, well, what do you think of what Leah says? Is, is anything of what she says true? Does it hold water? And I said, I don't know. I don't, I don't care. My experience is what matters. And my experience has been phenomenally great. I've not found anything odd or strange. Uh, I've looked for the aliens that everybody talks about in, in L. Ron Hubbard's writing. I can't find any. I thought that would be really cool. Um, you know, uh, they, you know, this, this talk of you know people being kidnapped. And, I, really? Come on. Are you serious? Where does this come from? I I don't know. So, and so you, again, you wouldn't pay attention to it. You personally have not experienced any negativity within being involved in the organization. The negativity I've experienced has been from outside the organization, the public that I bump into that have, have an opinion that is based basically on mainstream media and you know the interactions with other people who think that they know, uh, who have heard or seen something that's been negative and it's been passed on. That's the most negativity that I run into. But otherwise, no. I mean, I, I wouldn't stay in it. I wouldn't be involved if I found it at all negative. Yeah. So you're located in Kentucky and you've been there for years now, which is kind of interesting if you connect that to the mainstream media, because it seems like Scientology is portrayed as this very Hollywood-esque thing. And you're in Kentucky <laughs> doing this. And so... Yeah. It's, it seems like it might be a little more widespread than people realize because it, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. What is your experience like in Kentucky as a Scientologist? It's um, pretty rough. <laughs> this is a Bible belt. Yeah. There are um, very strong held Christian beliefs. And um, there are a certain number of people that are reaching all the time. Um, we receive probably about 125 requests every week uh, via our internet site from the tri-state area. We're in Kentucky, Northern Kentucky, which is just south of Cincinnati. So we are in charge of um, Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. So that's our major focus, but we do have other states that we hear from at this location. So this is a very, very strong religious area. And I don't want to say everyone is against us. It's a small percentage, but it's a very loud minority. Yeah. <laughs> and they have very strong beliefs. But when I really do get the chance to sit down and talk with them, it, their argument falls apart. And mainly because most of these individuals who are so violently against it haven't really done any research. They haven't read anything they don't really know and when you really discuss things with them right you know, i ask have you read dianetics no uh dianetics was l ron hubbard's first book it has nothing to do with scientology it's completely a psychological type approach to the mind but it's not psychology it's uniquely his work it simplifies the mind and the pictures and masses that affect the person's life that work alone could totally replace psychology Scientology is in itself a separate spiritual uh, viewpoint and philosophy of life. 
that has no interference religiously um, with the person's belief, other than possibly the concept that, you know, you're going to live again. I've lived before. There are memories that come up in Scientology and in Dianetics that can change that viewpoint. And a lot of the Christians can't have that. They, it's one life and that's it. And that's a big controversy. Mm -hmm. Did memories come up for you in that regard? Oh, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The first time uh, was in my life repair back in Los Angeles. And uh, there was a memory of, uh, of a cliff wooded area kind of a high hill and a rock cliff and clear clear as a bell I could, like looking out a back window looking at this thing in my mind and looking at it I felt this intense um, sadness and uh, we, I must have looked at it for a good half an hour and just feeling heavier and heavier feeling pressure I mean actual weight on my body my shoulders and my neck and like what is this and I I, I was trying to figure it out, and the auditor just allowed me to continue to look at it again without evaluating and telling me what it was. He knew, he knew where I was going with this, mm -hmm. and I said, "He said, what, what, what's going on there?" And I said, "There's nothing. It's just this cliff. It's this high cliff. It's rocks." It's, and he said, "Well, tell me more." I said, "I don't know. I feel really sad. Somebody died there," and he said, "Okay, well, continue to look at it," and I. I'm explaining this thing. And, and all the while I'm explaining it, it's getting heavier and heavier. I'm really literally being pushed down in the seat. And to make a long story short, I just came up at some point. I said, you know, could that have been me? And then that progressed into, yes, it was me. I fell or pushed or, or jumped or somehow fell off of that precipice and died. And that moment, that weight, that heaviness, that pressure lifted. And the auditor looked at me. He's looking at the meter across from me on the desk. And he said, thank you. Your needle is floating. So the needle... I was going back and forth, and it's the indication that just that, that the needle is floating, that there's been a change. That you released and you were attached to yeah, the, for that. Exactly. Yeah. And I immediately broke down and started bawling. I mean, I cried. Because all of a sudden, here was this understanding of a past that I had no idea and in subsequent auditing actions, I went back to that place and figured out what did happen. And wow, what an adventure that was. And um, you come to find out there are other times, even earlier than that, mm -hmm. where you have, you have memory of. So, you know, the, the, the people that aren't Scientologists said, well, you know, was that really you, Dan? Or is this just the cellular memory of your your great grandfather and great grandmother, and you know, cellular biological memory from other previous, you know, right, parents, ancestral, parents, ancestral like yeah, genetic exactly. Thing. I said, I don't know, I, I don't care. All I know is by my looking at it and understanding it, I feel better now, and it explains a lot. And other than that, it, it lifts, it, it's not something that. You know, I walk around, hey, yeah, I got pushed off a cliff and killed, you know, mm -hmm. 250 years ago. Ah. Yeah. It's got so, nothing to do with today. So there seems to be some kind of parallels to Eastern philosophy of the ancient texts and like meditation and like really having control of your mind in some ways, training your mind. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, Hubbard's initial work, uh, he studied the Veda. Yeah. Which is one of the most early... Uh, writings, Eastern writings, uh, as well as Buddhism and the Tao, yeah. uh, which these are all areas that he traveled as a child. And he grew up and his college education was that of an engineer. And if you know engineers, they're astutely aware of what works and they don't use what doesn't work. They throw it out. And uh, yeah. he took that approach to his writing and research. 
it's also interesting then that the the self-realization fellowship is right next to the Scientology Center in Los Angeles. <laughs> I'm sure they get along well. <laughs> but it's it seems like like meditation and, and these philosophies are becoming more mainstream and more widely accepted. Overall, people are kind of waking up to the idea that they can control their own thoughts and and what they want to do with them. Are you familiar? Absolutely. Are you familiar with like Dr. Joe Dispenza and all of the work that he's doing? I am not. Um, it's, again, it's uh, it's very selfish what I'm doing right now. It's, the concentration is completely on Hubbard's work, and once I'm done. I'll be able to look at other areas. So much of my efforts right now are just trying to duplicate the massive material this man came up with. But along that route, even Hubbard said that this is not the only way. Mm -hmm. I mean, he acknowledges he acknowledges Jesus, he acknowledged Jesus as the you know savior of the world. He um, said that traditions of the Buddhists are very real. It's just that he developed this particular path and you can follow it. It is something to pursue and it will end in a finite place uh, along the way, at different points. But, you know, I'm very comfortable around Buddhists and um, Rosicrucianists. And, you know, I have no problem anymore with any of these different religious philosophies. They're each unique to themselves and um, they have their good points. Mm -hmm. No negativity at all on it. It's just like, wow, a fellow traveler. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like they're all trying to say kind of the same thing in a different way. And it's just maybe yes. the, the approach to get there. Very true. So you, you, you mentioned that you have eight months left at your position in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. What will you do after that? Wow. That is an area that I'm so looking forward to because it's such a big choice. Um, along the way, I've kind of stumbled across paramotors and flying. I, I am a pilot. I gave it up, though, because of the cost and the amount of work that it takes to be a pilot. Pilots are very intelligent people that yeah. work at maintaining their their skill level. And it's a very crowded area when it comes to flying planes, very regulated. Uh, paramotors and paragliding are sports and they're less restricted, less regulated. And it's in many ways the sensation of flight is a spiritual thing at least for me there's always been I always mm -hmm. felt better when I landed <laughs> safely and I thought wow that was great you know um, so that is an area of attraction that I'm, I'm going to pursue uh, I've got I've been paying flowing money toward my lessons to learn how to fly uh, I'm scheduled to do that in January of 2022 or 23 anyway this, this coming January, it'll be 22, yeah. And uh, so that's going to occur in Corpus Christi. And uh, I thought I'd stay there for a few months and uh, attend several of the classes. They do it every other month. And uh, let me check out Texas. Texas seems to be a very uh, popular area now. Everybody's leaving uh, California and they're going I know, to Texas. I know, everyone's <laughs> fleeing from here. I want to get there while the property prices are still low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you better hurry. So, yes, I, so that's probably where I'm going to head next to learn that skill. Um, I'm 62 now. I'll be 63 then. And um, I'm thinking I'd like to settle down a bit, take my skills as a Scientologist and provide counseling for the public in, you know, in general areas, uh, continue my practice as a chiropractor fly paramotors, I think even open a coffee shop wow. uh, that sells paramotors on the side, maybe bicycles. I don't know, bake shop too. Just throw it all in there together. We can, <laughs> I have to come up with some kind of 
motto, you know, you can come fly, get high, maybe die. I don't know. <laughs> maybe you can uh, throw in a float tank in there too and get real crazy. Well, float tanks, that's an area that I've been attracted <laughs> to also. And, uh, you know, the, the two restrictions are always time and money, but time is more of an issue and not an issue anymore. It's, it's like, I've got the viewpoint now, well, next time around, I can do it again and do it differently, which uh -huh. is what most Scientologists really understand is there's another chance you have to come around and, and do it again. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me. This has been a fascinating conversation. <laughs> and I'm sure that other people are going to really get something out of this too. So I wrap up our conversation with this question every time. If your inner voice had a billboard, what would it say to the world? Wow. It would be reach out. Reach out. Reach out. Mm -hmm. It's that connection it, thing, yeah. Yeah, reach out to, to anyone, anything. Just move toward it and embrace it. Um, don't stop yourself. Don't slow down. Yeah, wow. There would be a lot of boards. <laughs> <laughs> so many of the things um, that we slow down for are just illusions. Mm -hmm. You can do whatever you wish to do and enjoy the process with this life that you have and serve and help people and experience widely and enjoy it at the same time while helping others. Mm, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me this week. If you're listening and you like what you hear, please consider subscribing and rating this podcast as it really helps get this podcast out to other people who might be interested in hearing it but don't know about it yet. And also, if you'd like to contact me or reach me, you can reach me at unconditioningpodcast at gmail.com or unconditioningpodcast on Instagram. Thank you so much. And until next time, stay tuned in to you.